Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and love all things tech. And today is a Friday. We got to get down on Friday, as Rebecca Black would say. But this is not an episode about Rebecca Black, who I would argue is an enigma. Instead, this is an episode about the Enigma, the Enigma coding machine. And we originally published this classic episode on October 19th, 2011. Chris Paulette and I talk about the Enigma machine, what it was, and what it took to break the code. I hope you enjoy, and I'll talk to you again in just a moment. Today we're going to talk about um, something that actually came to mind when, during the process of recording our episode on uh, quantum computers, which sort of led to a discussion of quantum cryptography. And cryptography is something that actually fascinates probably just about all of HowStuffWorks.com, considering. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it also comes to play, it, it touches on another uh, podcast topic that we tackled months and months ago, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Turing. Oh, yes. Alan Turing is going to come up in this one. very important in this discussion as well. We're talking about the, specifically the Enigma machine, which was a cipher machine used by Germany during World War II. Yeah, the the funny thing is, um, if you've watched any uh, history or read any history about World War II and uh, specifically the war between Germany and the Allies, um, you have a sense of what this machine meant to the German war effort. But the thing is, what I don't think comes across in a lot of those um, discussions is that there's no one Enigma machine. No. And it certainly wasn't unknown to the world before that because the, the Enigma goes back years before the start of World War II. It was actually a commercial uh, machine used to encrypt messages. And in fact, because it was a commercial machine, it gave some people a leg up on uh, on figuring out how to crack the code mm-hmm. because it was generally considered to be a practically uncrackable code if you were to follow the most careful uh, security procedures possible. And we'll get into why that is. Uh, but before I think before we jump into what the machine did and what how it did it, mm-hmm. we need to talk a little bit just about ciphers in general. Please. All right. So a cipher really, in in this case, we're talking about creating a a coded message. And uh, there are different ways of doing this, lots of different ways. You can create a new alphabet. You can uh, try and hide things in images. That's called a... Steganography. Steganography, right. What you can also do is hide messages within a file, like uh, like the code for a file. Mm -hmm. So I could send a seemingly harmless file to Chris, but if he were to actually look into the code of that file hidden there, not displayed in any form of executable function, might be a message. Yes. So there are lots of different ways of getting secret messages across, but a very common one is using a cipher where you replace one letter of the alphabet with another. Mm -hmm. All right. So the very basic version of that is a monoalphabetic substitution cipher. Gesundheit. <laughs> it means you're using just the one alphabet and that one letter is always going to represent an- another letter, always, in that cipher. Oh, yeah. My friends and I used to do this back in, you know, grade school. Yeah. You know, we, we would say, okay, so every letter, you know, the letter A is represented by the letter D and it just goes down the alphabet like that. Yeah, you've just shifted the alphabet to the to the uh, right a couple of, of places. Sure. Like that. And then you just go from there. And so in order to, uh, to decode this, if you're not just trying to crack it, I mean, if you're actually decoding it, like you're the person who is supposed to receive this message, 
you would need to know which letter, uh, you know, how far over did the alphabet shift, mm-hmm. right? Right. So if, if A is B and B is C and C is D, then you know, all right, well, it's a sh- it shifted one place. And so I know to shift all these letters back a spot so that I can decode this. Mm-hmm. All right, that's your very basic monoalphabetic substitution. Now, those are easy to crack. It's easy for anyone to crack. Yes. All right, as long as you know some basic... Uh, uh, rules and, and tendencies in your native language, you can crack these. For example, you can start looking for two letters that are like letters that are, are, uh, doubled up. Mm-hmm. And you start looking at those and then you think, okay, which letters in the English language, uh, are the most frequently paired together? Like two T's mm-hmm. would be an example. And, oh, two T's happen a lot. So that, that letter there could represent a T. Let me see if that starts to fit other things. And you look for patterns. Yes. And you find these patterns and you can decode things. You can make this a little more difficult, actually a lot more difficult, depending on how sophisticated you get using a polyalphabetic substitution. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's this uh, one kind of cipher called a Vignier cipher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a little more complex. Now, in a Vignier cipher, you've got a grid. It's 26 boxes across and 26 boxes tall. Yeah. All right. On that top level of the grid, you have the alphabet spelled out normally, A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. Mm-hmm. And then on the next one, you shift that letter over one. So now it's B through A. Mm-hmm. So the last the last one's going to be an A. And then you go the next level down, you shift it over again. So now it's C through B. Mm-hmm. And you do this all the way down until you get to Z to A at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. All right? Or not Z to A, Z to, uh, Z to Y. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm mixing myself up. Now, the way Vignier ciphers worked is you would have a key phrase or key word. Okay, so it's something that you and the person you're writing to have both agreed upon mm-hmm. in advance. So let's say that for for uh, Chris and I, we sit there and we decide tech stuff is our key phrase. Mm-hmm. You would look at your grid and you would go down that first column. You go all the way down to the T column, the column that starts the alphabet begins with the letter T. And then let's say that my first word is to Chris is going to be... Uh, howdy. I then look across the top of that grid for the H on the very top row. Right. All right. So I've, I've got my finger on the T uh, row based on the first column, and I've, I'm looking at the H column in the top row, and I find the intersection of those two. Mm-hmm. So where the T row and the H column meet, and then that letter represents H. And then for O, I go, because my key phrase is tech stuff, I go to the E column or E uh, uh, row on the first column. So I look at that first column, which is, again, in alphabetical order. So it's A, B, C, D, E. So I go to the E row and then I look for the O in the top row and I find the intersection of those, uh, uh, the column of O and the row of E. Mm -hmm. And that becomes my O. So... Chris, because he knows that the key phrase is text stuff, he knows which row to look at, and then he looks at the encoded letter. He finds that in the uh, in within that row, looks up to see what column it is, and that's the letter it it decodes into. Mm-hmm. Now, this might sound really complex. That's kind of the point. <laughs> well, you don't want the enemy to decipher your code because then it will learn what you're up to, right? And the element of surprise is lost. So. Uh, the, this um, this method becomes less 
useful if you are starting to encode longer and longer messages because that increases the chance that the enemy or someone who is not meant to read the code can figure out your key phrase or keyword. And mm-hmm. if they figure out that keyword, then they've unlocked everything. That's all they need. They just need to create a veneer cipher graph or chart and then use that key phrase to decode what you've said. Mm-hmm. Now, the Enigma machine takes an, a, a similar approach to the veneer cipher and complicates it on a massive scale and also automates it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, um, you know, with any of these codes, the, the key uh, is the, probably the most important part. Um, if you uh, intercept a coded transmission and you have, have no idea how it has been enciphered, it's going to take you much longer to try to break that code. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas if somebody on the other end has the key to it, they'll be able to decipher it in no time yep. or you know, a little bit more than no time. Um, so that's that's one of the tricky parts is, I mean, you can, uh, you know, and during World War II, there were, there were all kinds of different ways to send messages, including things like one-time pads, which is a, a, a pad used uh, of paper used with a particular code. This is the one for this message. And uh, this would be used out in the field by agents who couldn't carry something like a, a rotor machine like the Enigma yeah. uh, with them. Uh, you know, and the thing is, if the if you lose, if the person on the other end loses the, the key for that particular pad, um, it's just going to take forever. But the Enigma was a way to, to automate this um, this process. And uh, this machine, which was first patented in 1919, ended up being pivotal. Uh, in World War II, both for the Germans and, well, actually the, the Axis, because they did have a, a Japanese version that mm-hmm. they, they used. Um, but, uh, also for the Allies when they were able to figure out how the machine worked and, uh, because it does have its own flaws. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about what was in an Enigma machine and what it looked like and, and how it encoded letters. Mm-hmm. Um, each of the machines, uh, going back to the very first one, the Enigma A, uh, had rotor wheels mm-hmm. um, and a keyboard. It looks a little, uh, if you've never seen one of these machines, and they, they all look a little different. There are, uh, like I said, uh, several different types of machines that evolved over time, but all of them had a keyboard on it. Yeah. Um, arranged in more of a, uh, well, at first it was an alphabetic fashion and then turned into more the uh, uh, German uh, keyboard style. But, um, so kind of like a typewriter. Yeah. And the very first one looked a little bit like a, one of the old timey cash registers. It was so big. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, these had rotor wheels though. And so you would type a letter, let's say A, and depending on the way the rotor wheels were set, it would produce a completely different letter. Yeah. And the way it would produce it is it had lamps, 26 lamps, each one, uh, marked with a letter. And the lamp that lit up would be the encoded uh, letter for that particular key press. Yeah, these were the ones used in World War II. The earlier ones did not have lamps. Um, but yeah, I mean, the ones that we're talking about specifically around World War II, that made it easier for the operator to identify which letter was being used. Because these most of these machines had no printer. Yeah, usually you would have two people working on both sides of this, both the encoding and decoding side. You would have one person who would be pressing the keys and another person who would either be writing down 
the uh, the letter, um, the encoded letter, or writing down the decoded letter, because an important part of the Enigma machine, and actually one of the reasons why uh, it was eventually broken, was that it was a device that if if you if you type the let's let's just say. For, mm-hmm. for argument's sake, that if I type the letter A, the letter Q comes up okay. on the lamp. Mm-hmm. Well, if I were to take a second Enigma machine that was that was uh, configured the same way as the first one, and that's really important. We'll talk more about why that is in a minute. And I type the letter Q, the letter A would light up. Mm-hmm. And then all I would have to do essentially is take my coded message that was sent to me type it out on my Enigma machine that is configured the same way that the uh, encoded message machines was configured and then have someone else write down which lamps lit up and I have the decoded message. Mm-hmm. Except mm-hmm. that the people in England were saying, no, this is gibberish, it's useless. And someone says, no, you idiot, it's in German. Uh, anyway, the um, I thought that would make you laugh. Nice. I thought about that last night and oh, I was just shit. waiting to unleash it. We have more to say about the Enigma machine and how it worked, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. The cool thing here is that, all right, so imagine that each of these rotors, think of it like a uh, a cylinder, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So imagine a cylinder and uh, on the uh, the on the ends of the cylinder are rods and contact points. So there's rods on one side and contact points on the other. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is where an electrical current can flow through. Now there are 26 rods and 26 contact points. So there's one for each of the letters of the alphabet. Right. Now if you were silly, you would just wire these straight across. So A would all position one would would also uh, would be a straight wire from the rod to the contact in position one. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, that's not the way the Enigma machine works. What happened was they wired it so that position one would go to a different contact on the other side. So position one might go to con- – like rod one might go to contact 12. Right. Rod two might go to contact 23. Rod three might go to contact one, that kind of thing. And you had this mass of wires inside the rotor – that determined which ones went to what. Mm-hmm. And then the rotor would fit inside the Enigma machine, which would uh, uh, electricity from a battery would come through. And depending on what key you pressed, that would allow the pathway to go through to a certain rod. The The electricity would go through the wire in the rotor, come out the side of the contact that, again, is not directly across from the position of the rod. And that's the basic idea of how it would substitute a letter. Now, if it if the 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 rotor did not turn, or if there were not more rotors, you would just have a monoalphabetic substitution. Mm-hmm. Like every time you type A, the letter Q would light up, if nothing else changed, if that's all it did, in which case it would have been a useless machine because people would have been able to break that without ever having to spend more than a couple of hours on a, on a, on a message. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the machines um, were using three rotors. Yes. Um, now, here's, here's where this makes it more complex. Uh, these machines came with five rotors, uh, named, numbered with Roman numerals. Yep. Um, and every, and here, here again, here's part of the key. Um, the German command would send out the monthly use of wheels. So you might put the wheels in four, one, two. Yeah. So uh, four would be in the leftmost position. Yes. One would be in the middle. Two would be in the rightmost position. Mm-hmm. And every time the operator presses a letter, let's say J, the third, actually, 
Think of this if you've ever seen a car odometer that measures the distance. Yeah. The rotor on the right moves one notch every time the operator presses a button. So the operator presses J, the rotor on the right turns one notch. The operator presses N, the rotor turns one notch. And in the middle, um, every so often, the middle rotor moves one notch. Right. And then... Again, with the leftmost the final, wheel, the final it moves more slowly. Right. So as the operator is typing the message out, the rotors are turning to encipher the message more thoroughly. Right. Um, the idea being that you're not repeating the same alphabet too frequently. In fact, you it would take you it would take you an incredibly long message to be able to repeat such an alphabet. Ah, and that's one of the tricks. Eventually, yeah. it could happen, which is why the Germans limited their message length to 250 characters. So, to, to explain this even further, if I press, let's say that I just have the one rotor in there, mm-hmm. just for simplicity's sake. So I've got one rotor in there, and if I press the letter A, the letter Q lights up, because that's just the way the, the, the wiring is in that rotor. Mm-hmm. After I press the letter A, the rotor turns one notch. I press the letter A. Well, Q's not going to light up because what's just happened is that there's a new rod mm-hmm. where the electricity makes contact with that rod. It's in position, you know, A, the first rod was in position one. Now that the rotor has turned one notch, the rotor, the rod that's in position for the letter A is rod two. So instead of Q lighting up, maybe J lights up. So you could just keep pressing A. And a different letter is going to light up every time, except for one other exception we should point out, which was, again, something that helped the Allies break the Enigma code. Mm-hmm. They, the Germans had decided, foolishly as it turns out, that no letter would ever encipher to itself. Yes, yeah, so B can never be B. Yeah, so if you saw the letter B in a message, you automatically knew it wasn't B. Mm-hmm. So you've just, you've just, and that sounds like it's minuscule, that you've only eliminated one option, but that was huge. Yes. I mean, without that, it would have been so much harder to, to decode these messages. Now, when you add that second rotor in, uh, so let's say that, uh, again, we're going to go with the positions. Uh, so the so we have the rods in the 26 positions and the contacts on the other side of the cylinder in 26 positions. Mm-hmm. Electricity comes in through rod 1, and it's going out through uh, contact 12. Then you have your second rotor. So the second rotor, rod 12, is accepting the uh, electricity, but its contact, the, the, the second rotor's rod 12, is connected to contact uh, 7. So you've got now... Something that's going in through contact uh, rod one and coming out contact seven once it gets through the second rotor. You add a third rotor in, that makes it even more complicated. So it's like you've just added a huge mass of wires to this device, and it gets even more complex. I'm sorry, did you say huge mass of wires? Yeah. Like the uh, Steckerbrett? Yes. So here's where the mass of wires also comes in. There was a plug board that came with many of these Enigma machines. Not all, but many. Yeah, do you remember, uh, if you think back to images you've seen of old telephone operators, right. when they had to connect a call, they would physically take a wire and connect one person and plug it into the slot for the other person to make the connection. Well, uh, on the Enigma machine, uh, they had wires and plugs that went from, that basically connected the letters. Yeah. So in other words, you might connect the letter A and the letter J together with a, with a wire, which means every time you press the letter A, 
it's acting as if you press the letter J. So that add, added yet another layer of, of uh, encryption on top of this device. Uh, so no, you're no longer sending a message to contact one because that would be the one for A. Mm-hmm. You're sending it to a different, or not contact, but rod. You're sending it to a different rod. Uh, so Serling? Maybe. So by setting the alphabet position on each rotor, Mm-hmm. Setting the rotors in the particular order, choosing you know which rotor you want, because the, these rotors, by the way, were not um, alpha. They, if you were to look at a rotor and turn it, and it had the letters on it, it would not be in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. They mixed up the order of the letters too. They wanted to make it as complex as possible. So depending upon the the rotors you choose, the order you put them in, and the plugs that you plug into the plug board, that would determine what would happen. If you pressed any particular key at any particular time, mm-hmm. plus it's in German, and you're probably uh, transmitting it in Morse code, so that's the level that you have to get through in order to get to that original message. Yeah. In addition, um, the Germans tended to break up messages into regular patterns of um, five characters at a time. So you know, A F B Q G space. You know, so the message wasn't written out, and so you wouldn't say, "Okay, well, this this uh, word has three letters, and they're only you know." Yeah, there are only so many words, words in, in German, German that would letters. have three letters. Yeah, yeah, they broke it up so that once you know there was really no way to tell how long the word was. Right. So a single le- word, and remember, this is German, so these words could be you know I'm waiting seventy three characters long. So a single word might might span multiple five letter segments. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, it might begin on letter four of this five-letter group and then finish you know, three groups later down the line. Mm-hmm. And that might have just been the word for, I don't know, like car. Um, so, uh, yeah, it just made it, made it more difficult, obfuscated the meaning of the original phrase as much as possible. So how would you ever decode such a message? Now, if you've got it really set up so that... Everyone knows how the uh, how to set up their own particular Enigma machine based upon a code book. You would have to have like a, a code book that was um, given out by leadership, right? You'd have to have someone in charge saying, on this day, for all messages that we send out, this is the configuration you have to use. Yeah, because, because if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be able to un- decode it. Right. You'd have, the uh, the German command would specify the wheel order and the ring setting and the the steckering, the yes. cross plugging. Stecker means plug. Yeah. So they called it a plug board. It was uh, steckerbrett. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, the cipher clerk would uh, would basically turn the three wheels to a position at random, whatever he wanted it to be, and then you, they would twice put in the own randomly random text setting or message setting. Um, and this was the indicator, which was six-letter character. Um, and then you set your wheels at that uh, three-letter text setting, mm-hmm. and it would give you the um, the the uh, code that the person who was on the other side is supposed to know to get through it. Um, the thing is, it would always have. And this is another thing that, that boggles the mind to me. Um, with something with a device this capable. Um, they would transmit some things in clear text, like the preamble, basically say the time of day, yeah. uh, the number of letters in the text, and things like that. That was sent in clear. I guess it was necessary, but it made it easier uh, to figure out exactly what was going on and when it was set. And that turned out to be important later. Right. Um, and they would 
tell you, you know, certain things, um, you know, and everything came out in five letter groups and the indicator, which was in six letters, they changed that le- later, which made it more difficult for the allies. But still at that point, it was too late. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it also didn't help that. You know, the allies knew to look for certain words that would be used over and over again in messages. Yes. They called them cribs. Yes. So they would look for these cribs uh, or, or possible cribs and uh, based upon just letter groupings. And they could, you know, eliminate cribs from certain groups of letters again because if a certain letter appeared at a certain part of a word and it was the same letter that should have been you knew it wasn't that word mm-hmm. right because of course a letter is never going to encode as itself using an enigma machine yep so um yeah using these basic rules it, it sounds like it's astronomical like the number of of things you would have to eliminate and really it is pretty it's a pretty big number but that's where folks like Turing came in they they knew a bit about the Enigma machine already mm-hmm. because the Enigma, the the whole rotor-based cryptography device, as Chris said, uh, predated World War II. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that the trick is not getting your hands on a machine. It's figuring out how, what settings the machine is being used to encode so that you can break the message. Although it did help because if you got your hands on the machine, you could at least find out what the wiring was. Yes. And you could, you could then start to eliminate various combinations because you're going to say, okay, if it's, if it's a Roman numeral one rotor, then this position is always going to map to this contact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you could start to eliminate things that way. Uh, the, the, uh, over in Poland, there were cryptographers who were breaking these codes before World War II broke out. Yes. Um, Unfortunate. And they had a machine that they would use to do that. Yep. Uh, called the Bomba. Yep. And, uh, and someone set them up the Bomba? Yeah, actually, they, uh, when war broke out and it became obvious that things were, uh, <laughs> that it was going to be discovered that they were able to do this, the machine was destroyed. Yeah. Now, Which is, some of the some of the code breakers made their way over to England and mm-hmm. helped the English code breakers uh, by adding to the level of knowledge about what the Enigma machine was and how it worked. They also uh, had some breakthroughs that uh, stemmed just from from luck and and uh, and bravery, really, because we're talking about uh, times where where allies captured. A, uh, a a German group that had an Enigma machine, often something like a, a submarine. Um, they would capture that, and if they were able to, they could get the machine and the code book, which would essentially tell them pretty much everything they needed to know. But uh, meanwhile, Turing was working on his own Bomba. Yes, he was. Um, yeah. I, before we go into uh, into that, I want to point out that we left out there. There's more to the Enigma machines. Um, than we really went into. And I would recommend, if you're interested in learning more, um, there's a website for uh, the Crypto Museum, uh-huh. uh, which is in the Netherlands. It's a virtual museum, but CryptoMuseum.com um, will tell you probably everything you ever wanted to know about the Enigma machines and uh, and more. Have you guys cracked the code yet? Yes, there is a code hidden in this episode. Think it over while we take a break to thank our sponsor. The Navy, by the way, that was the, mach- the three rotor machine was the one used by the, uh, Army, the Army Air, Air Force. Force. The Navy had a four wheel machine. Yes, which was even more complex. And the, uh, the secret service 
uh, the, the people who were in the, the high intelligence groups used a completely different machine. Well, not completely different, but, uh, used even a more difficult machine to crack, um, than and, that. And they all had different variations on that. And in general, the Navy tended to practice better security measures and, uh, made it, it made it much more challenging to break that code. Mm-hmm. The Army and Air Force, uh, by contrast, were not as, as careful. And so their codes were broken, uh, faster than the Navy's. Um, it's you know part of part of decoding the the enigma machine came into figuring out the wiring of the system yeah and part of it came from you know more traditional cryptographic approaches where you're looking for patterns and you're looking for key phrases and you're looking for uh, uh, things that could indicate that um, that you've stumbled onto something. So if you if you receive several coded messages, uh, I think a lot of problems is that we think of of decoding as you get one message and you're trying to figure it all out based on that one message. Mm-hmm. There were hundreds of messages sent. Sure. So if you have hundreds of messages sent and you're working under the assumption that everyone has is using the same uh, basic layout for their Enigma machine, you start looking for patterns. Mm-hmm. And if you find enough patterns, you might say, oh, all right, well, look, these these two messages here start with the same, uh, essentially the same uh, um, pattern. So that may suggest that they're both starting with the same word. Mm-hmm. So let's start working back. And, and it may even be, when I'm talking about patterns, I'm not even necessarily talking about the same ciphered letters. Because again, if, if, if uh, a German A has set the rotors to a certain uh, alphabet setting to start off, and German B has chosen a totally different set. Uh, you're looking again at the actual pattern of of letter occurrence, not which letters they are. Yeah, it also helps to have an, uh, a thorough knowledge of German, more, much more than my uh, one year in coll- in high school yeah. enabled me to. Uh, fake my way through that greeting. Um, no, they also look at contact analysis, mm-hmm. which is basically uh, how frequently one letter will be next to another in a language. So if you know uh, German, then you're able to know certain things uh, about the way uh, certain words are more common than others, certain letter formations. So uh, I think in, in a lot of ways, um, until the Allies were able to get a hold of, uh, you know, more thorough um, code cracking materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the traditional code breaking tools like cribs and uh, and contact analysis were probably very helpful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really funny to me is uh, in, in doing my research, uh, I was reading about uh, John Harrival, uh, the Cambridge mathematician. He was 21 years old. Um, and he was looking to uh, to get into the cipher known as red um, that the Germans had used. And what's funny to me is he actually stumbled upon something that we look at on uh, that we've actually sort of talked about on the show. We've talked about passwords. Mm-hmm. Um, he figured that at some point uh, they were going to get lazy and stop changing things and stop changing the keys that people would use for their. Uh, um, the codes that they would use at the beginning of the message to tell you which rotor settings. Right. Basically, people would start using uh, the name of their dog or their girlfriend to start encoding the messages, and they were going to start leaving it there. Once the the first message of the day was sent, they're not going to change it for every message anymore because they're in a hurry mm-hmm. or they're lazy and they're not going to change it. And at first, 
Um, apparently this didn't, they were abiding by the rules. They were doing things the way they were supposed to. But as soon as people became complacent and started leaving that setting throughout the day, once they had cracked the first message of the day, that's it. They were set. Yeah. And they were able to, they could uh, identify this. And they basically asked for all the messages sent across all of the machines uh, for the first one of the day. And once they were able to do that, um, they were able to crack red and basically identify what was going on for the entire day's communications. And that happened around 1940 or so. Yeah. Um, which was uh, fairly early for, I mean, it was before the Americans got involved, but of course Europe had been embroiled in war for a while at that point. Right. Um, but that's a pretty, that's one of those things where we tell you not to be uh, careless with your passwords. And, you know, even back then, it, it's just sort of ironic to me. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, you know, it's it. You're talking about a, a device that once you start to encode the message, that's a very time-consuming process. Mm-hmm. You know, setting your device the proper way and then starting to actually encode it and to confirm that you know you that the the letters you are writing down are indeed the correct ones based upon that configuration. It's. The longer the message is, the longer it's going to take to encode, and that means that the, the, the greater the span of time between when the message was written and when the message is received uh, becomes. And that, that, all of that, I think, leads to that sort of lazy behavior because you don't want to uh, uh, you know, suffer problems because you were too slow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of different reasons why this happened. I, and I think a part of it was just because it's such a huge pain in the butt. But that's the point. I mean, if cryptography wasn't a pain in the butt then there'd be no secrecy there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to make it difficult enough so that the message remains safe. So mm-hmm. once we start getting tired of going to those pains, there's no more safety. Yep, yep. Um, but yeah, we, we talked about Alan Turing, um, and he invented a machine known as the uh, the Banbarismus. Yeah. Um, which, I don't know why I called it that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically it was able to identify patterns in the text messages, and that just made it faster uh, for the allies to be able to track things down. Yeah, the, I think his machine was capable of of decoding a an uh, Enigma message within something like fifteen hours, which mm-hmm. sounds like it's a long time. But when you're talking about eliminating all those possibilities, it's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. you're talking, you know, this is this these are the developments that led into. Computers. Mm-hmm. And th- this predates computers, but these devices sort of became the precursor to the computer. Yeah, and uh, you know that's one of the reasons why we talk about Turing being uh, a a father of of computing mm-hmm. and and computer science because it's this sort of stuff that uh, that led to computers in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. Uh, I think also one of the misconceptions is that uh, the machine known as Colossus. Uh, was used in breaking the Enigma ciphers. And uh, that actually is not true. Um, Colossus is frequently re- referred to as one of the first uh, electronic computers. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it was actually used to break the Lorenz cipher system, mm-hmm. which is another, a, a different machine um, that was used by the German Army High Command. Um, and Lorenz is a, the name of a company, and they basically uh, uh, had uh, been working on a completely different type of machine um, that did not use the Enigma codes, uh, but yeah, they used um, the British used Colossus to uh, figure out the Lorenz system. Um, but yeah, that that actually is the machine that uh, we talked about back in our uh, 
um, chiptunes podcast when yep. uh, Pixel Hate was uh, had been allowed into the uh, Bletchley Park Museum to record the mechanical relays. And of course, uh, today's computers, uh, as in terms of processing power, could do the work that these machines did in scant <laughs> a fraction of what the, the time needed to do that then. But um, and, and can more thoroughly encrypt messages. I mean, yeah. even the uh, the freeware tools that you can get now to encrypt email um, are more thorough than than these machines were. But um, still, very fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, it was really. I would love to actually get a chance to to see one of these devices, and there are quite a few of them. Many, in, many of in them. museums and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never actually. I, I mean, I've seen plenty of pictures, but I've never actually seen one of these devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, kind of curious, want to play with one. And that wraps up another classic episode. Hey, you know that thing I said about a secret code in the episode? I lied. There's no secret code. I I just wanted to seem cool for just a second. It's all I have. But if you guys have something, you know, like an idea for a future episode of Tech Stuff, something that in the far future can become a classic episode of Tech Stuff, let me know. Send me an email. My address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Head on over to our merchandise store over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. There you can buy tote bags, stickers, t-shirts, all sorts of cool stuff with techstuff logos and, and more on it. And every single purchase you make goes to help the show, so we appreciate it. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 